business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And I also want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour of today's show for making it economically viable. Our sponsors are Eurostar Gold Corp. and Liberty Silver Corp. Well, uh, Peter, when we left, we were talking about, I think, what is probably you know, the most important market, if one of the most important markets, and that's the long-dated treasuries. Uh, as, you know, we've, the, the treasuries, I'm uh, looking at the screen right now, the long 10-year uh, bond is at 1.812. Uh, you mentioned 1.85. Um, so the rates are actually down again today. Um, and uh, on the other hand, though, I'm seeing a, a, a headline here in the Financial Times. I think this is today's Financial Times. Uh, yes, it is Tuesday. It says inflation measures jump in response to QE3, uh, and they're saying bond investors pushed a key measure of U.S. In- inflation expectations yesterday to its highest level since 2006 in response to last week's aggressive policy action by the Federal Reserve. So it seems to me that the markets are uh, reflecting your view. Uh, do you, do you uh, find uh, this is a majority view out there, or? Somebody's still, as you say, people are still buying the treasuries, though, obviously. Well, or, is it, or is it all Bernanke that's buying them? N- n- the bond rates are not going to collapse when $40 billion worth of uh, bond-related investments are going to be purchased out of thin air by the Fed. So yeah. no, no one, nor do I expect that suddenly it's going to be 5% tomorrow. Two things too important, but in the short few days since the announcement, a, that rate you spoke above is higher than it was before the announcement. You would think it would have went lower the yeah. next year. Good point. Secondly, some of the inflation-related bond investments out there, there are bonds even that the government puts out that benefit or actually perform or should perform better if inflation does go higher. We are seeing spreads move towards them and money flow out of bonds that don't do that into that. Yeah. So, I think some people have seen the watershed event. I don't expect it. Remember, I've just told my readers for months and even to expect that we're going to make a marginal no higher in the Dow when it was a couple thousand or a few thousand points below where it is now. I don't expect a 5% 10-year this year. I think what the Fed has done can last for weeks, if not several months. And the most likely event it will be no matter who wins the election. Mm-hmm. Although my belief is Obama accelerates the inevitable, and all Romney can do is postpone the inevitable. 
Mm-hmm. But in either case, once whoever is in the office come January 21st, as we get into the spring and summer, the reality of all this will hit home. Uh, there will be no more silver bullets because there, there really is nothing now that even the don't worry, be happy crowd that entrenches Wall Street could conceivably talk about that the Fed can do that somehow looks even more special than what they just supposedly did the other day. And therefore, being out of bullets and throwing the kitchen sink and throwing a Hail Mary pass that eventually gets dropped in the end zone, the bottom line will be is suddenly the cup will go from half full to half empty. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons of many that I remain a staunch bull on gold and continue to call it the mother of all gold bull markets is that this move, in my opinion, only reinforces and actually could potentially accelerate the move that otherwise was coming in the gold market. Because one of the things that this has clearly done, and coinciding, and let's not forget that it was just a few weeks ago, when Europe has made a similar move, and so two of the biggest uh, economic areas of the world where governments have opened up the spigots and are, are printing money is really destroying or will hurt the currencies within those economies. Mm-hmm. And we all know, and I know, again, I'm singing to the choir, but I'd say the same thing if I was at the annual meeting of the Don't Worry, Be Happy crowd on Wall Street, and that is the one great benefit of this will be gold because the one great negative person that's getting impacted is the term in the yield U.S. dollar. Right. And so uh, one of the things that I got out of last week was my enormous belief in gold and a what I called the mother of all global markets. If it didn't have an underlining reason to still be manically bullish, the Fed gave it to me last week. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the gold market certainly did respond immediately to uh, to that. We've seen uh, a real good run in gold as a, as a result of that, I think. And with respect to the uh, currencies, we know that they're all paper fiat currencies that uh, have nothing behind them except the confidence, the con artistry of the politicians and central bankers that are behind them. Uh, but one idea that Peter Schiff uh, talked about in New York at a conference that I attended the other day, uh, I want to run that by you. Peter's idea was that in relative terms, the dollar is likely to get weaker than the euro right now because the Europeans have temporarily taken care of, uh, have temporarily put their problem on the back burner seemingly. Uh, and so it looks like the, uh, euro, the euro isn't going to fall apart immediately. So therefore, a lot of people who were worried, you know, they didn't know which currency they wanted to put their money in. They didn't know, who, you know, where are you going to put your money if you're European? I guess, I guess, I guess the German bonds or German currency. But otherwise, a lot of money went from Europe into the dollar, and he says he believes that's flowing out and will continue to do so. And he sees the dollar as being weaker than the euro in the short run. I know it doesn't matter long term because they're all going to basically, uh, you know, enter what their their intrinsic value of zero. But uh, any thoughts about relative strength in currencies in the meantime? Sure. Uh, to my readers, several weeks ago, I noted to them that in the foreign currency market, there was an unbelievable reading of 96% bulls on the U.S. dollar. And my view at that time was that the market was setting up for an incredible short covering rally against the dollar, and that when the euro would get above 125, we would see an acceleration of that. Now, the Fed move helped accelerate that, but nevertheless, it came. The other thing about the, the European situation is this, 
and I, I don't know if this ends up making me agree with Peter Schiff, but they're already so much further down their road in their problem. It's not that their problem has gotten much better. Yeah. They still face an enormity of problems that they faced a year or three or four years ago. But they've moved so much further down with it and facing up to it. Here in America, I still find most Americans, the vast majority, are conducting themselves the same way they were conducting themselves in 2007 and 2005 and 2003. They continue to spend more than they take in. They continue to expect and anticipate that the government will step in for them and take care of their needs. And they continue not to do any of the things that, that, that needs to be done in order to, to improve the situation. And so right. one of the things I think will happen is, as bad as the euro is, the perception will be is it will be the lesser of two evils. Mm-hmm. Not that it will go up so much because everybody wants to own it. It just won't go down as much as the dollar eventually will uh, and has. And that's another thing that's real important, Jay. Mm-hmm. If you look at the dollar, and people look at it and use the U.S. dollar index, which is both good and bad, and the reason it's bad is it's not a fairly weighted index. It's so its single biggest component is the euro, the right. trade-weighted dollar. The Morgan Stanley trade-weighted dollar index is much better. But in, no matter which one you use, you will see that not only based on the U.S. dollar index that we fall from 140 to 70, but all we could ever manage off that 70 low was a rally to the low 80s, and now we turn back down again. Yeah. What does that say about what used to be called the store of safety, the number one place to be, et cetera, et cetera? And, and what took its place? What rallied in lieu of the dollar? And so it's very hard, particularly for the, the perma bears, to accept that because they so utterly hate gold and for a whole bunch of reasons. But the bottom line is, to the James Turks of the world who said gold is money, they've been absolutely right because it's performed better than any paper money that's out there. Absolutely. It's been a store of value for uh, uh, since uh, uh, certainly since this bull market began in 2002 or so. Well, you know, what you say about Europe uh, rings true with me, Peter. Anecdotally, I, I would say uh, my wife is Portuguese. Uh, your wife is is Irish, so you would have some uh, some understanding, some connections there. The, I think uh, I know the Portuguese uh, uh, have gone through in terms of significant cuts in pension benefits and benefits that come from the government. People are taking fewer vacations. Uh, they're having to to do with less. Uh, I agree with you. I don't think uh, we've seen that much. I, I do think there are people in the Midwest for years that have lost their their better jobs, have had to cut back in their living standards. But I don't think we've seen the kind of austerity that's come out of this this, this uh, debt. I, I call it insolvency crisis that we have globally. So I, I think you're right. Have you uh, you're in touch with Ireland? What do you? The Irish people have uh, have had to suffer some, haven't they? Well, they have, but here too. Uh, and, and I don't follow Portugal as much, but I'll, I'll go on the assumption that you do. But here, look at Italy versus Greece since this all began. Mm-hmm. Italy, uh, Greece continues to not make the austerity cuts. Mm-hmm. They continue to see, you know, and demand more from government, not less. While Ireland has gone into some very vicious cuts, but are already starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel economically for that. Mm-hmm. Here in America, uh, what has happened? Consumer debt continues to increase. Uh, we, we know the employment numbers. We, we're not seeing any real increase in employment. We also know the underemployment argument. We know that a lot of people have either given up or working at jobs less than they would have if they could. And so 
America has, has only gotten worse at a time when the government decided to add, you know, trillions of dollars more to the debt, and now the printer of that, the, the safeguard of the so-called press, has just put it on as full blast, as far as hard as it, it, it can print out money. And so the inevitable will be eventually after the excitement and those who benefit from this, and this is very, very important. These QE1s, 2s, and 3s have had a very narrow focus in terms of who have benefited. And who have benefited is mostly the banks and people who have large sums of money and financial assets. That's been the benefit. The reason it was supposedly done was the so-called health, employment, and businesses and all, when the net effect is we're not seeing any of that get down to that line. Right. I've always learned that once we're at a number 3, 4, or 5 in something, then it's probably not working very well. So QE1 and QE2 obviously didn't work, or we wouldn't have the need for QE3. And so I think the more QEs you have, the actually less chance they have succeeding, and that perception will be. So I don't know when the couple suddenly go from half full to half empty. I don't think it's now. I think they can milk it. The only asterisk that I will put to that is, because it's something I've said for quite a long time that I hope I'm wrong on, but knew in, in the end I'd be right, and that is a question of when, not if, we have a large-scale military conflict in the Middle East, which I think could be as little as days or no more than weeks away. And how the markets will hold up in that environment is still something to be seen, and how what could be the outcome of such a, that conflict. But outside of that, for the very near term, meaning days and weeks, the least resistance still, in my opinion, in the equity markets up because of what the Fed did. Take me to 2013 and beyond, I think what they did actually accelerated to the downside, which inevitably I think we're going to. Well, it's, uh, it certainly could happen. The, uh, the conflicts in the Middle East, uh, the, uh, I think it's a, a religious war. It's a war that is going on for sure. Uh, we've had a lot of very interesting guests on this show uh, that have talked about the uh, the political considerations, the uh, uh, the uh, the corporate interest of America, and I think I don't know, Peter, to what extent you and I agree on this, but certainly the sort of I think what is sort of a fascist uh, corporate interest, the banks and the large uh, corporate interest, and the CIA and and uh, other operatives uh, behind the scene. I mean, I certainly do agree with Ron Paul when he said the reason they're over here is because we're over there. I don't know if you would if you would agree with that or not. Well, my view on this is this, and my view is that Israel is this small little country surrounded by enemies. I'm not going to get into an argument of who's right and who's wrong and who, who has why, who's the person to have be viewed as a right enemy and not. But their view is that we are surrounded by enemies. But in particular, we have one enemy that openly and continuously talks about annihilating us. And I can't imagine whether we're Canadian-Americans, and we thought on, on the other side of the border, and every day as an American, I heard the Canadian leader and vice versa talking about my destruction and know that they're working on something that they don't have now, but if they decide to use it, if they build it, could lead to my destruction. Mm -hmm. I don't know how comfortable we would feel. And I think that's where Israel feels it's at. And my view is we as Americans or Canadians would want to do something preemptive, not reactive. Right. That's why uh, I believe and everything politically that's happening and the feeling that Israel is not being supported by this current administration, which I totally agree with, and I'd be very surprised and I'd be shocked still to see that the Jewish vote in America still 
fails Obama because one thing I think it's been clear, he doesn't have the same opinion of Israel that predecessors had, both Democrat and Republicans. Mm-hmm. So I feel that the movement in Israel is sooner than later now. And when that comes, and already what is happening in the Middle East now, that is something that could call into question and change what QE3 did. But right. We can't begin to think about that or suspect what will happen until, unfortunately, when it happens versus if it happens. Well, it certainly, uh, it, it certainly a war could certainly be one way um, that uh, some of the powers that be might, might want to see us pulling our, ourselves out of this hole, although I don't believe that would do it. I think we're in a different position. We were in World War, let's say, follow, following the Great Depression. Uh, you know, a lot of... But we've got to remember, in all those, when people compare to those times, we were creditor nation. We weren't yeah. the world's largest debtor exactly. nation. That's, that's a hard thing, and, and I find 80 90% of financial advisors that work in the street don't even have the smarts to understand that. Yeah. And that yeah. is the big difference is when you're a creditor, it's a lot easier to deal with stuff when you, versus when you're a big debtor, no matter what area of the world you work in. And so we don't have the luxuries we had to take advantage of things in the past because of our large-scale debt that we owe as a nation. Mm-hmm. Well, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, at that point in time, uh, the the tide was turning from Britain to the United States because we were a creditor nation. We were stronger in many ways. And, of course, there's so much going on now globally, too, not just uh, in the Middle East, but in Asia as well. When you look at uh, the Chinese, God knows what's going on in China now. I mean, it's, it's a total mystery to me, although uh, I know that uh, Mr. Chang, who, uh, uh, who is an expert on China, was talking, uh, I heard him on CNBC, uh, or on Bloomberg yesterday, saying that this issue with the island that is under is being contested between uh, uh, between Japan and China is a very serious issue because it could very well draw the United States into uh, a conflict there to try to to defend Japan. So I'm wondering if uh, you know if if the military industrial complex, as Eisenhower referred to it, uh, it might not be licking their chops as an opportunity for war. And, and speaking of of um, uh, preemptive hits. Uh, isn't that our total foreign policy now, Peter? I mean, almost everybody around the world is an enemy, and we have to go hit them before they hit us. And is that maybe not causing us some problems? Well, I don't know if that's the actual case. I, I believe this president is a believer that we owe apologies and for whatever was done wrong in the past. And I don't know if his attitude is let's hit them before them. I, I kind of, my personal opinion is he's actually maybe more on the other side. On the other side, yeah. Equation on that. But one of the things that you bring out, and you talked about China and all, is, is geopolitical concerns, something that hasn't been a big factor in people's day-to-day here. But there's one benefit of all this geopolitical, political, economic, social uh, things that are happening both here and abroad, and that's gold. All these things that we talk about, unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, benefits the gold market, and that's why... I just remain, not because I'm a gold bug, not because I wear a tinfoil hat, uh, because it's a market that has, it's the greatest stealth bull market in the history of the world. I've never seen something go up so much with so few people net across the board participating in it. And that's that's why I still believe it has so much farther to go because of the lack of 
overall participation in it, and bull markets like this never end until the general population is participated in some way. But I also have to put an asterisk is I understand to some degree why they don't, because some of the people out there who are so negative continue to help them miss the greatest bull market of all time. Yeah, well, there's, uh, we certainly know some people that are perma bears on the gold side, and we, we might, if we have time, talk about one or two of those, of those fellows, those people that you and I know, and, uh, they, they, uh, at least one of these guys is quite hostile towards, uh, towards gold, and they look at us as, uh, us gold bugs as some sort of crazy religious zealots, but, uh, before we get into a little bit more, I just want to quickly, when we talk about the Middle East, you always have to think about oil. So uh, we have a global economy that's that's uh, that's in the toilet. It's not doing well. What about oil without a without a conflict? Well, oil on a pure economic needs basis should be in the forty to sixty dollar range. Really? Mm-hmm. That that's where I think it would be on pure availability of supply versus current demand. Mm-hmm. However, and it can't change because of just some of the things we spoke about. There's uh, a 30 to 50 to even more premium in because of the geopolitical concerns worldwide mm-hmm. and, and most focal in the Middle East. I really think if, not that it's ever going to come, but if world peace suddenly came in the Middle East and, and, and we saw pictures of people in Israel and surrounding countries shaking hands, oil will be trading for about $25, $35 a barrel because we have a fair good ample supply of it currently and we certainly have enough uh, excess of gas that's produced. However, that is not going to happen, and therefore there's a built-in premium that can only grow larger if those conflicts turn into very serious conflicts, or as you said, outright war. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we'll ever see 40, 60, or even 70. We probably have a 75 to 85 dollar low end, and a 125 to 150 plus if those conflicts get out of hand or look to be out of hand. Would you uh, look to play oil then uh, as uh, as an investor in a, in an oil stock or two? Or and again, uh, that that's the individual needs, and it's not an area that I consider myself having the least bit of expertise, other than a general opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and like I said, I think there are a couple more. What I view is, if there's such a thing, closer to being sure. I think the gold market uh, is only now, and I've said this for quite a period, but I I guess I would risk fame, fortune, and my own child by saying now, you know, a 2,000-plus gold is just, it's coming. Uh, Everything that's taken place and then some, thanks to the Fed last week, I think accelerates and will eventually get us to even have to raise, you know, my target of 2350 on gold based on what the Fed is doing and and what I think the gold market is going to do. And most importantly, in the last several days, types of people that are talking about gold and owning it that haven't either done it or haven't spoken about it in years suggest to me that we could start to see some of the more higher numbers that people have had, uh, you know, 2,500, 3,000 is now more, can be more realistic than it was five years or so ago. Mm-hmm. Well, James Turk, I know, is, uh, is, is certainly uh, predicting a $2,000 price by the end of this year. And I would say, Peter, from what I'm understanding what's going on in Europe, uh, and with the Basel III Accord, uh, there are some of the banks, you know, where they're not allowed to consider, they, they have to give gold a, a 50% haircut on their holdings in gold. Some of those banks have been selling their gold out in the market, turning around and buying treasuries, which are valued at 100%. And the Basel III Accord is wanting to have gold uh, equal to cash and treasuries. 
uh, and then uh, and uh, and if that comes to be true, even though if the United States doesn't go along with Basel III, which they frequently do not, well, uh, with the Basel Accord, um, uh, in any event, uh, if there is that recognition that gold, um, you know, is equal to, and it, I think you know, and you think it's superior, it obviously is to Treasuries, then uh, that could be a big, a big, a big uh, positive for gold. But I also believe that if people start to doubt the Treasury markets, the U.S. Treasury markets of all, and and other Treasury markets, then uh, you know, and they start to go to gold. You, I mean, how much, how much value is out there in the Treasury markets compared to the gold market, for example? And if there was a rush from Treasuries into gold, I mean, what would that do conceivably to the price of gold? Well, I think. The bigger uh, story is the, the how badly the perma bears missed it and why. What what they have never grasped or refused to grasp is dramatic change in the gold market than 10 or 20 years ago. 10 or 20 years ago, we had a huge seller, always mm-hmm. tapped the market. It was called central banks. Not only are they not sellers anymore, they're net buyers. 10 or 20 years ago, it was very popular. American Barracks, now known as Barrack Gold, literally made a living off it by being more of a commodities trader than a gold producer, but it was very fashionable to be a hedger, to sell gold forward. Now that's a four-letter word if you're a gold producer and you try to tell your shareholders you want to do that. ETFs, whether or not they truly own gold or what have you, they created a vehicle for institutional and large-scale investors to move into gold that otherwise would have never done it. Now, to some extent, mining shares suffer from that because that used to be the proxy they used. But the actual physical market has benefited up until now from ETFs. Now, on top of all of that, we know that governments, two key ones around the world, the Europeans and the Americans, have opened the spigot, are going to print money like there's no tomorrow, which can only be, over a long period of time, beneficial for gold. When you combine all of that, and like you said, and eventually at least siphoning out of treasuries and into the gold market, if not a run, it's, it's all systems go for it. And, then, and that's why I continue to laugh. And yes, market times on my own blog, a couple of the perma bears, because not only they keep being wrong, but they keep saying the same thing after all this happens. And I consider them the greatest contrarian signal one could have ever used. And I would be really nervous and more concerned if they ever told the line and start to come on on the right side so thank god they continue to do what they do as much as i like the market but i'm glad they do because they're living proof that there's still so many more people still to enter this market oh yeah for sure we have uh the likes of john nadler coming on bloomberg frequently uh to give his expertise and i'm wondering why they keep bringing him on because he has been so wrong so long he has been a perma bear and to this day, I'm sure if John were here with us, he would be talking about uh, how the gold price is going back to I don't know 800 or something. I mean, he'll keep raising the the bottom up as the as the market keeps reaching new highs. But before we get into some more of the, the dynamics and why some of these people think the way they do, I just have to ask you about the gold share market, Peter. You 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 made a, a quick note of it or mentioned it, but the gold shares have not been performing. They've been really bad, as Joe Martin was. Reminding us, it's been a tough year for his business in part. I, know, I think Joe's still doing okay, but it's not been a, a banner, stellar year. You and I know our portfolios have been hurting some. Mine has anyway. I don't, can't speak for yours. Uh, what, and, but it seems to me as I look at the, um, uh, at the Toronto, uh, gold index, for example, it seems like it's probably hit a double bottom. Uh, do you think, uh, we've seen the lows for the gold shares? 
Well, until a few weeks ago, I lost more money on paper in those type of shares than I ever imagined in my entire life I would have as a worth. So uh, I, I understand your pain. I felt the pain. Uh, but part of the things that people have not grown accustomed to here is is that there's been fundamental changes in the metals and mining industry. Most of them make it more difficult in that business. Not only is there's been a siphoning of some of the money that used to flow in them that now goes into general ETFs, the business itself has become more difficult. You know, you and I, 20 years ago, we put our head on the pillow tonight and maybe we think of three or four different areas of the world that maybe we're concerned when we wake up and we're in, we have a junior mining company in that area and we hear some negative news. Now political instability is something where we almost count just a few places where we think it's safe, where we can put our head on the pillow and not worry about that. Uh, Cost. Uh, National nationalism of resources is a growing problem worldwide. There are a whole host of things, including compliance reasons, changes in the way the financial industry services that more financial people no longer recommend or get involved in individual stocks or the people who used to have interest in junior resource stocks are less now than than it was when gold was much lower priced. There's a whole host of things that have made it more difficult for that business, and that's why I think we've seen it so-called underperform given what the metal prices have done. But we've gone through such a bear market, and realistically, the venture exchange is a feast or famine exchange. Mm -hmm. It really never goes for a long period of time in the medium. Well, we've just had a real bad famine, perhaps the second worst famine that I remember in the 30 years we've been involved. So the natural expectation and likelihood is to bounce from that, which we're seeing. The difficulty in that is because most juniors, 90-something percent of them, work with six months or less of needed capital and how low their share prices went and how still difficult relative it is to finance, for the rest of the year at least, we may see a more of a subdued reaction. Even though goals rally and they rise, they don't rise as much as people would expect. But once we get through this calendar year and once we see the inevitable consolidations and restructuring of options and all the things that happen, particularly in the junior market, then I think the market for 2013 and beyond can be very strong. Yeah. Well, certainly I'm looking at the index chart right now of the, uh, this is the Toronto Gold Index, uh, Gold Share Index, uh, and it looks like it closed today at 349.33. It hit a low of 270 earlier in the year, then another bottom close to that at 280, but it came down from 440. So 440 to 270 within a few months. That's, that's quite a haircut. And, uh, but the chart certainly looks constructive to me. I don't know if, uh, what your thoughts are from a technical point of view. Well, I, I like to look at technicals, but I know at the end of the day, in a business where failure is the norm, which is the junior resource yeah. market, in the end of the day, uh, technicals won't really matter much. What's going to really matter is does those juniors find enough ore to make it worthwhile to sell what they have or develop it? And so technicals are kind of important for the short to intermediate term, but long term don't have much significance to me in the junior market. When we go up up the food chain and we get to producers, I believe it has more. But like I said, the worst is clearly behind us. We went through a devastation almost like market, and and, and not for any one particular reason or suggest because what normally brings them down, just that we did. But while the worst is behind us and while I think we can continue to rise, the percentage of what expectations people think could be rise may be somewhat negative to them because we're 
up. We're against the end of the calendar year. And financing dollars are still not to be had. Financiers realize they're still in control right now. Many juniors are very hungry. They're running on empty. And therefore, I don't think there's going to be super deals for the junior end of the side of the business until we get to next year. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Peter, we only have a few minutes left, and I want to ask you about the Gold Antitrust Action Committee. You've been a strong supporter of GATA. Uh, how much uh, how much do you think uh, has been suppressed in terms of, I mean, it's hard. It's a hard question to answer. I know you can't really know for sure. But how much do you think the, the gold price has been knocked down by, by manipulation in the gold markets? Well, I like to laugh and sometimes get angry, I'm sure, as the GATA people do, at their most ardent foes, because not only as time goes on, there's more and more at least minimally circumstantial evidence, if not an occasional smoking gun, come up to support them, but the bottom line is the GATA people have been right, and the foes that knock them and make have been wrong about the actual performance of the metal. So I, I, I don't know how they you know, get knocked, except that I know that in the business of financial services, gold is really an enemy. If gold does really well, what they're making, they're living in doesn't. So I understand the built-in negative that the financial world and the journalists have against it. But I think Gatter has more than demonstrated from a circumstantial evidence uh, reasons to believe what they say is true. But in the end, they demonstrated the only thing that matters. They were right about the price, and the people who disagreed with them were wrong about the price. And the last time I looked, maybe because I deal in sports and another business, who wins the game at the end really matters. It doesn't matter what took place during the game. It's who won or lost. And I think clearly Gatter has uh, beaten up and left in the dust those who, who ardently, and not respectfully, mind you either, uh, disagree with them. No, they continue, uh, some of these people continue to uh, make excuses. For example, uh, one person I heard uh, say about a year ago or so uh, that uh, the reason that GATA is wrong uh, still is because, well, uh, the fact that the gold price has gone up is proof that it's not manipulated. Well, I think that's that's uh, sort of a silly argument because, uh, you know, it's not to say it wouldn't be a lot higher. I mean, I think uh, I think you would agree with me, Peter, that in the long run, they can't suppress the gold price. The markets are going to prevail, right? But in the short run, within certain time frames, they can manipulate the market, bring it down, take it up, allow it to go in different directions. Uh, the very powerful bullion banks that have such a big percentage of the futures markets under their control can can manipulate the paper price of the of the of the market, uh, but they can't control the physical price, uh, the physical value, uh, the, the price the market is going to pay for the physical uh, metal, right? You and I both know one in particular party has refused to honestly debate this issue. Given the chance, I know even you asked them to come on and debate me. Uh, instead, uh, you know, they, they, they take their shots from the safety and the confines without having to face up to it. The question I always want to ask them in front of the public is forget about how wrong they've been. And they've been wrong. John, nobody's been more wrong than John Nadler. His model's the same. He, every day he spends reasons why it shouldn't. The gold market moves against him. He throws out a number a little bit above and says, maybe he can get to there, but here's the reasons why. And then it goes to another level, and it's just the same repetitions. But the question I want to ask them and would like to ask them on live TV is, explain to me how every other market, every other market, 
has been shown to have been manipulated. We've seen all the charges and, and, the, and, the, and, and the Goldman Sachs and bonds and the equity market and futures and oil and this and that. Yeah. And somehow it doesn't happen in the gold and silver market. Yeah. <laughs> That's the question. That's the embarrassment that they deserve to have and be put on the spot, which still is never going to be done. But that's what should be done. It's explained to me how you can say that we're fools to think there's manipulation in gold and silver, but because it can happen in every other market, somehow it stops at the doors at the gold and silver market. Yeah, it's, uh, it probably says something about the importance of gold and silver, Peter, with respect to the game that they're playing in the fiat money. Because as we, as we noted earlier, you shine. You know, gold is like a, a floodlight uh, being shined on a on a burglar breaking into your home at night. Listen, uh, I- I got to say this. I've heard people say, particularly about Nather, well, he's a mouthpiece for those groups and all. I don't think so because, A, I think those groups are very sophisticated, and if he's their mouthpiece, they lost already. Yeah. Because anybody that would have any recollection and understanding versus winning versus losing that would follow that person and read and see what has been said and the actual results over a 10-year period would realize he's been the absolute worst forecaster of gold bar none. At least the other person that you mentioned, at least he's the spokesperson for a group that we know that some of us believe may be part of participants in the manipulation, the CPM group. But right. Nadler, who's out there and supposedly works in, you know, maybe he's down now because he only writes his thing two or three days a week because he continues to be so wrong. But I can't believe that if we're right about groups that anyone would want to use him because who would have any respect for him because he has a record that's zero for a thousand. I mean, there's not even one conceivable, you know, I learned a long time ago, if you make one call on Wall Street, you can almost live off it for several years. Yeah. But jeepers, this, the man's never been right, never. And, and, and the frustration is, and, and I know maybe I'm getting off on a tear, but I, I feel for the Gatta people and all, when they get told that they can't be heard in, in, in a medium form or even mentioned them, Mm-hmm. And then somebody that's so wrong over so time, is their faces up to it. Shame on you. That's what I say to those people. And people ask me why I don't go back on that particular network. That's the main reason. Do I suffer from it? Sure. My business has probably been hurt by me not being on that network that used to have me on all the time. But the heck, if they're going to do that and they're going to suppress and say that Gatter can't be on there, well, you know what? Then I stand with Gatter and I'll stand, you know, with, with them to the day I die because one day they've been upfront about, they haven't hid from what they felt. They work from, you want to talk about on fuel, fumes. I mean, they've yep. never been a financially strong organization that had all sorts of money to spend. And look what they achieved in that. And at the end of the day, if you listen to them or those others, if, if you listen to Gatt, if you want, if you listen to the others that lost. And believe me, in sports and people, professional athletes, the only thing that matters, I hear them in the locker room, is what's the score at the end of the game. Well, that's for sure, and you do hear them in the locker room, Peter. You are very much involved in, uh, with professional athletes, and, and uh, you did mention your other business, and let, let me just ask you to tell our listeners, you, you made some reference to your other business. Tell our listeners uh, a little about that business. We've sure. got a couple more Where minutes. I spend yet. the rest of my life, I have a business called Trinity Financial Sports and Entertainment. It's a Christian-based business. It, uh, while it deals with the general public and insurance estate planning, it specializes in dealing with professional athletes. And the rest of my time is spent in the professional athlete arena, both through Christian Sports Ministry, where I do Bible study in chapel with both the Giants and the Yankees, and then actually working with professional athletes in Christian ministries like Athletes in Action 
and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Yeah, that's uh, so. I'm, I have to ask you: Is John Nadler showing up for one of your Bible studies lately? No, and, and to be real serious, you and I had to withstand being in a room uh, at one of his speeches, which to me was one of the most anti-Christian, anti-God talks I ever heard in any form, let alone at a financial form. But that's okay. It helps explain to me where he's at and at times holds me back from even being more aggressive against him to try to understand because I get these emails, how unchristian it is of you to say this about the man. Well, listen, Robert Precht has been as bearish on gold overall as Nadler's been. But Robert is a gentleman, a man that has been at least right in other areas and isn't deserving of the treatment of the same treatment that I've given to Nadler. Right. So it's not a question because they're wrong and I've been right or gloating or being unchristian like. This man has been detrimental to people and refuses to not only admit his mistakes, but carries on as if he's been right all along and we've been wrong. That, yeah. That's I think at the end of the day when Bill Murphy in particular, but Bill Murphy and Chris Powell and the people who live and breathe gather on a day-to-day out hour that you and I don't, perhaps the most frustrating thing that they must feel is is how right they've been, how wrong the other side's been, but how arrogant the other side has been while being wrong. I think if they were even the least bit classiest, you would not see Gatter get so angry and so upset, as I know they must feel and do at times, and to even be not allowed to be on simply because they're viewed as kooks or, or wear tinfoil hats, and then anybody associated with them get stroked with the same brush. I know I have. I know that's been my case, but you know what? At the end of the day, I'll stand with the people with the integrity and also have been right. Well, you do have to wonder why uh, why Mr. Nadler is so incredibly hostile towards uh, towards uh, Christian uh, believers. Uh, it may say, as you say, suggest a lot about himself, about what he's about. Uh, well, that's uh, neither here nor there, I suppose. Uh, but I would like to ask you, Peter, before we finish our conversation today to tell our listeners where they can pick up and follow your work because you do put out a lot of information on a, on a blog i think you have yes it, it, it's at grandish.com which is g-r-a-n-d-i-c-h.com and the other business is trinity financial sports and entertainment management well thank you very much peter for being with us uh, it's, it's been a pleasure always so good to hear from you you have a lot of great insights and no you don't have a phd from harvard but you do have a Ph.D. from the streets, and you also, uh, I think, take guidance uh, from the creator of the universe, which uh, probably is the most important thing of all. Thanks so much for being with us, Peter. Don't go away, folks. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on today's show. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. 
Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters voice america business network the bottom line in business Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and the Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, uh, and I uh, want to just uh, sort of round out and talk about some of the issues that we that we covered today. Uh, I would encourage you to, uh, those of you who are able to go to the conference, uh, the Cambridge House conference uh, in Toronto, I believe uh, what Joe Martin said is absolutely correct, that we are uh, that, that we are looking at uh, some better times, some very good times, possibly some enormously good times uh, in the gold share market. I mean, I, I temper that because I do have uh, a bias towards the deflation side. I think that we have uh, a huge amount of debt that has to be repaid, and debt is by nature deflationary. And so there could come a time in the not-too-distant future when, uh, <clears throat> when the other side becomes a, a major problem. I think right now the major issue uh, and, and the reason that uh, Mr. Bernanke and others, including myself, are not worried about hyperinflation at the moment is because um, uh, the banks have the money, but they're not lending, and they can't, they can't lend because they're having a hard time finding credit-worthy borrowers. Uh, but as Ron Paul has said on this show and, uh, and elsewhere, uh, the policymakers have the wherewithal. They have the infrastructure in place to to do helicopter money. No, not literally, but they will 
churn it out, send it to us in checks, uh, however they want to do it, or they can just uh, almost literally shower the uh, the country with money and put demand in the hands of the masses. I I rather think that they'll keep the existing game going as long as possible. All you have to do is see who's putting huge amounts of money into the coffers of both presidential candidates uh, to, to find out who really runs the country. And, of course, we've talked uh, with uh, Mr. Baker last week and uh, just a, a huge amount of respect uh, for Russ Baker and his book called The Family of Secrets, which I, time permitting, when I'm able to dig into this a little further and, and try to understand what's really going on in America. It is uh, the, the ruling elite uh, will keep this game going as long as possible. And as Peter Granich pointed out, uh, the game has really been uh, benefiting. All these QEs are benefiting uh, Wall Street. I mean, they're not doing it's doing almost nothing for Main Street. Uh, but uh, Wall Street craves the next QE fix. Uh, the, the question that I have in my mind is uh, whether or not, as Richard Russell poses uh, and talks about uh, the possibility that it's not going to do any good, you know, sooner or later you can keep giving drugs to a, uh, to a, uh, to a heroin addict, but eventually his heart stops beating and uh, the pathology of the, of the drug starts to, uh, to impact the vital organs. And I think that's where we're at globally and economically is that the vital organs of this economy are, are starting to be impaired because, um, well, you, you know, you, you just keep adding debt. And debt is growing, as I point out, time and time again, it's growing exponentially. David Ta- Stockman talked about how if we go from a 1.5% to 5% increase in interest rates, our debt burden in the United States becomes $600 billion a year. Well, that's incredible. So where is the money going to come to constantly fight wars around the world? Uh, you know, where is the money going to come from, more importantly, uh, to make good on the Social Security and Medicare promises that our government has made to the citizens of this country? Uh, you know, we are, in a, we are in a terrible fix. There's no question about that in my mind. So will QE fix infinite? Actually, we can call it QEI for infinite. Um, uh, will it fix anything? Well, um, you know, I was yesterday morning. I was on Squawk Box for a few minutes uh, with Joe Kernan, and uh, uh, ahead of me was uh, an economist named Bob Bruska, and also uh, Kevin Caron. He's uh, he is a uh, involved as a money manager and chief strategist for a firm uh, here on the East Coast. And both of those gentlemen were were quite convinced, and I consider both of them to be pretty mainstream guys quite convinced that quantitative easing will do nothing uh, for Main Street and for the economy as a whole. Uh, so what uh, I, I might also mention just uh, Robini, the famous economist, uh, is saying that we are in a perfect storm uh, of risk for the global economy. So he believes also that quantitative easing won't do anything right now uh, except perhaps make things worse. Um, I would like to mention, though, what, what this show is about and what it tries to be about is understanding the real causes of this economic pathology. And I think it probably goes deeper than just, uh, I think it does go a lot deeper than just uh, uh, economic policy, uh, free market economics, which we all would like to have. But for some reason, we've decided that we do not want to subject ourselves. And I say we, as a nation, uh, have decided we do not want to subject ourselves to the to the rigors of free market and competition. That's what it's all about. That's why the policymakers, uh, the people, the powers behind the throne, in a very fascist uh, sort of state of, uh, of politics that we are involved in now, are able to get the 
the people they throw the money at and the, uh, the people that run our country to get them to vote and uh, to get them to pass legislation that does away with competition. That's what that's what fascism is, fascism is all about. That's what the Federal Reserve is all about. The Federal Reserve is about monopoly banking to keep competition away. Why do they not want to have gold compete with paper money? Well, because it was, it's superior, and of course it would disallow them to. Uh, rearrange wealth, uh, to reallocate wealth from the people that produce it, the miners, the manufacturers, the inventors, the farmers, people that really actually create wealth are being uh, are being destroyed in the process. Now, uh, I just want to mention Ron Paul's final subcommittee meeting is going to be held in Washington, uh, in Washington on the uh, 18th. Uh, Congressional Ron Paul, chairman of the Domestic Monetary Policy, I'm reading from a press release here, um, uh, Congressman Ron Paul, chairman of the Domestic Monetary and Technical Subcommittee, announced today that the subcommittee will hold a hearing to examine the effects of the Federal Reserve interest rate policy on the American people. Well, David Stockman said earlier this week that this is uh, the heart of capitalism, that this is Mr. Bernanke has gone over the line completely now, and that this is the, these are the last days and this is destructive of capitalism. Ron Paul will be having uh, on his, uh, uh, at his committee James Grant and Louis Lehrman, uh, we've had Lewis Lehrman on this show a couple of times, uh, James Grant, of course, very well known. Both of those are proponents of the gold standard. No, not too many people are listening to Ron Paul's subcommittee. Well, let's say not too many of the establishment people. I think a lots of people are listening to Ron Paul and are, have a deep respect for Ron because, uh, well, because he lives what he preaches, honestly. Uh, he doesn't have to worry about getting uh, caught up in some dirty underwear because he has always been forthright and up front and has done actually what I talked about earlier. Ron Paul has not been afraid to hurt his own chances for re-election by standing up for what he believes. And that has gained enormous amount of respect for him. But I would suggest that those of you who are able to, you can listen to this subcommittee meeting live. I mean, to hear James Grant and Louis Lehrman uh, uh, alone is worth the, uh, is worth the effort. Uh, you can go to financialservices.house.gov. That's financialservices.house.gov. Uh, to listen to that hearing live, and I'm sure you can catch it on YouTube as well later on. We just want to mention only a minute left. I did, uh, I did visit the, uh, I did attend the uh, Mises Institute's uh, conference this past uh, last Friday in New York. It was very, very worthwhile, uh, and I would encourage you to go to Mises.com. That's M-I-S-E-S dot com. Uh, I, I'm sorry, dot org. Uh, and, and learn about this organization. It's an excellent organization. David Stockman spoke there, Dr. Walter Block, who's written a wonderful book on Ron Paul. Uh, you should try to buy that book and read it. It's just excellent. It's a political book, but it's uh, the Mises.org is where you should go to learn more about this wonderful group. I am going to be more involved and have more uh, intellectual speakers, uh, speakers on the show from, from that show. Well, that's all the time we do have. I want to mention... Um, Next week, I'm going to have Alistair McLeod. He is an economist who writes for James Turk's Gold Money. Also, I think that we're going to have um, uh, Charles Daniels. He's a country and western singer come on to talk about a new video uh, about America called Behold a Pale Horse. Uh, that's all the time we have. I want to thank my uh, producer, Tacey Trump, for making this show, uh, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll be right back.